Ja, Lauren. Hey guys What's going on T? Not much buddy Welcome to episode 55 Is that right? You're always so much better at keeping track of the episodes than I am What number are we on? It's been a while since we did this. So so yes. many of you noticed probably we took a week off. There we didn't actually plan to. There was a um a couple of uh vacations and you know August is kind of a crazy month. So we actually kind of felt kind of schmucky because it was like man through the last essentially like year and a half however long we've been doing this with everything going on we hadn't skipped a week. And then we skipped a week for like a fairly like stupid benign reason you know <laughs> like, yeah right but in those that are uh also in michigan or probably the midwest will understand this but we also had some power outage issues well, yeah that's right that was a yeah. factor that was yeah. a huge factor and it is factor. episode 56 by the way 56. you're absolutely right in, in fact if it weren't for the power outage i lost it for four days which was lovely and you know i'm of course i'm brilliant enough to not have a generator which is also lovely but i think that's going to change soon but yeah if it weren't for the power outage we probably would have figured it out Really, we just wanted to take a week just to ponder the question. What's this life for? No, I've been, dude, I've been uh, driving my wife nuts. I, all I've been doing is going around the house for the last week, just going, I cry out to God seeking only his decision. <laughs> Gabriel stands and confirms of Christ. <laughs> that's, that's all I can do. Is just, Gabriel stands and confirms, you know, it, that's all I can do for the last like. Yeah. And we took a week off. So we've been, I have at least been listening to this record for the last two weeks. And I just, I can't, I can't stop. I can't I cry <laughs> out to God. I, I can't, I can't stop it. There's something really interesting with this album. I think you're touching on it. Creed's My Own Prison is our featured act of, of episode 56. We, we've done nothing on this podcast, but essentially be nostalgic, right? I mean, we've been choosing albums from, in most cases, decades ago. And in most cases, they're aligned with some sort of experience we've had, right? That's kind of one of the, you know, little inside baseball. It's kind of one of the natures of, of two twins in an album, right? It's like sort of about music, but it's also about kind of eras and how these eras kind of connect to our lives. Right. Cause we're just so interesting. Cause we're just you know? so fascinating. Just right? So yeah. inter- such interesting people. Yeah. You know? but, but with all of that revisiting, right. Cause the show has like really just gotten us into that mindset. There was something about listening to this again, that was different from the others. And I think maybe it has to do with the, the time between listens, the album on a whole, it was like, Oh yeah, like they did that riff at that moment. And oh, this song was on here. And that was the second track. And you know what I mean? Like it, there's something about this one that put me back into an even more relatable place in terms of the nostalgia. Can't wait to dive into it. Looking forward to all of your I mean, I, you know, I'm always looking forward to your takes, but I'm excited about your wonder story. I'm excited about your final cut. I, I just have no idea. I could sum it all up if you'd like. I mean, and then I sure. could just leave. I could Let's just leave. It. You could do the rest of it. But 
I, I think what's what, what I what I love about the revisit on this one is man, it's got it's got everything from from 19 what was the year 97 yeah. yeah i mean so so check it out you've got like the dramatics this uh, this record is so dramatic it's so serious like it just like yeah yeah you know we talk a lot about the the sort of appeal for us in bands or artists or projects that don't take themselves serious these guys at this point were taking themselves about as seriously as any band in the history of music i mean yeah. it's so great yeah the loud, quiet, loud elements that you've talked about, the sort of gritty post grunge underproduced. We'll talk about that. But I think what really sums it up is the ambiguous Christian rock. <laughs> oh, dude. Totally. hundred percent. And dude, listen, is there a more Florida album than this album? I mean, in, in, in the history of music, has there ever been an album that has been more Florida? I don't know. It's a great point. I think you just <laughs> in in one fell swoop summed up our entire conversation about this album. I mean, it's just, you nailed everything. And I love it, Florida. Man. I love I yeah. love the, the people of Florida. I love the sunshine. I love it all. Uh, but it doesn't get more Florida than us. As I used to tell my students uh, when I taught history, Florida ain't all Mickey Mouse. You know, yeah. <laughs> that's right. It's a, it's a little bit of a different kind of place, eh? But. Um, yeah, I think you summed that up perfectly well. I mean, I could just try and sum it up in one, you know, maybe just one attempt. And T, I think that we, uh, I think right now, I think we need to take each other a little higher. So let's go there. Let's make our escape. Come on and let's go there. Let's off and we stay. <laughs> Can you take me higher? Yeah. To a place where lights and breeze. Whatever. Can you take me higher? At the very end, you know, it gets all pissed. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, a lyric sheet probably wouldn't hurt you. I'm not thoroughly convinced it would have helped me though. No, I don't think it matters. I mean, it's all about the, it's all about the, the scowl, the, he probably didn't even need words. He probably in all their songs could have just gone. It's like, who gives a shit what he's saying? Right. Just do it. Yeah. Do your thing. Scott. That's one. I got, we have so much to talk about that. That's one thing we'll talk about is like, there was this whole, Pearl Jam thing, and a lot of it was like the marbles in the mouth. You know, I just, we'll get to it. Let, let's yeah, dive into yeah. all that. We will certainly get into all these great takes. I can't wait for this one too. All right, let, let's uh, let's find out though what we've been uh, listening to. Right, so let's get into the uh, round and round. T run. All right, T three albums that you have been enjoying for the last uh, week or so. What do you got? Well, I'm going to keep up the, uh, the, the Florida thing, I guess, uh, with the band we've talked about on here before. And that is uh, Saigon Kick, who I think is probably the best. I don't know. I'm probably missing somebody. I guess Leonard Skinner was from Florida, technically, weren't they? Maybe other than Skinner, probably the best rock band ever come out of Florida. And that, to me, is Saigon Kick. And, you know, just their record, The Lizard. Uh, man, when you get in the mood for some Florida rock... You know, I don't know how you avoid, uh, you know, going in the direction of these guys. The second is a, a little something different. And this is a JJ fad. You know, they did the song, a uh, supersonic in the eighties. 
And, uh, you know, it's great. They, they made a full album, believe it or not. There's, there's 10 tracks on it and, uh, it's called supersonic the album. So kind of a, like a space balls kind of thing there. I can honestly say I've never heard of that. You know, the song supersonic, right? Supersonic. That one. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. This is on our pre gig playlist, isn't it? Probably. Yeah, I think it is. I mean, yeah, that's, that's, I don't know. That's pretty brilliant, but, uh, you know, they, they got a, a other songs, uh, on supersonic, the album. Let me just give you a few. There's uh, blame it on the music. There's a uh, eeny meeny beats. Do they all sound just like another version of supersonic time to get stupid? Well, here I'll just play Let's play. Let's get hyped and just see what's, what's going on here. So let's get hyped. Diddy ding, ding, ding. Yeah. Does that sound like supersonic? Not really. Let's try blame it on the music. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that sounds like supersonic. <laughs> Listen to that. It's amazing. I think it's the same song. Oh, we got a guest, a featuring. That's got to be a featuring because there were only three chicks in JJ Fan. So it's got a little bit of Uncle Luke to it. You know what I mean? Like, do you hear that? Buddy, are you thinking what I'm thinking? Episode 57, <laughs> Supersonic the album. Nah. Either nah. that or as nasty as they want to be. You know what? Ooh. That would be an incredible episode. No, we'll we'll definitely we'll talk about two life crime. I mean, you have yeah. to in, in Yeah. The, in I mean, it's crime. it really is significant, you know. It's very significant. A lot of context there. For sure. So at the third, I, I guess I couldn't pick one because you know, whenever I listen to System of a Down, it's always I always basically mesh hypnotize and mesmerize together. It's hard to really listen to one without the other. So, you know, I see that as kind of a double album, even though I think there was a little bit of lag time in those releases, but uh, it's too bad that that band kind of broke down because they were really interesting and really innovative, you know, but I I think it holds up pretty well, hypnotize and mesmerize. So that wraps it up. So listen, you got um, Saigon Kick, JJ Fad and System of a Down. I think those are three. That's a trio that you hear in the same sort of vein and in the same, uh, you know, kind of uh, sentence often. So I think you really need to need to expand your taste. Yeah. Clearly very limited. I think that's probably right. Well, it's running around for you, buddy. I love the opening track on, I I always get them confused, but which one opens with attack? Is that mesmerize? That's a hypnotize. Yeah. Attack. Yeah. We attacked. I love that. Yeah. (laughs) So good, man. Yeah. System's awesome. Uh, three albums for me too. Well, one is, uh, from 2007. It's the album Blackbird by Alter Bridge. Second would be from 2010, the album AB3 from Alter Bridge. And third would be 2013, the album Fortress by a little band called Alter Bridge. Because, you know, if you're going to get into Creed for a time period, you should probably, uh, you know, really get into Alter Bridge as well. It's a band that I begged T to come to a show with. And, and, uh, (laughs) You weren't all that impressed, which was surprising because I love Alter. I think Miles Kennedy is a fantastic front man. And Alter Bridge, for those of you who do not know, is essentially the band Creed without Scott Stapp, but with Miles Kennedy, who's far more talented and far less annoying than Scott Stapp. And I, I, I had high hopes. I thought you were going to love the show and you, you really didn't. I mean, I think from what I recall, I think I was most pleased that night that the place we were at had Michelob Light, which you don't see a lot of anymore. Michelob Light's <laughs> You know, the Michelob brand has really taken a backseat to Ultra. They've really kind of, the Ultra brand is really what they've, you know, taken on as their uh, their main identity and really their lead blocker as a business. Um, 
But uh, look, that place had Michelob Blade, and that's pretty much what I remember from that night. Yeah. Yeah, that was a strikeout on my part, but eh, you know, listen, maybe you'll try again. Maybe you'll try it wasn't again. like terrible. I just remember being kind of excited for it to end so we could leave. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll give some context to Alterbridge certainly as we uh, dive into my own prison, and let's get real nerdy with it here as we get into the nerdy deets done dirt cheap. You want some dirty deets? Yeah. You want some dirty deets? All right, my own prison is the debut album from Creed. It was released really two different times, so the album was essentially. You certainly wouldn't call it a demo, but it was sort of, it was very small scale. It was recorded at a home studio. The original release was on an independent label. I think it was the band's label, which is Blue Collar Records. And that was released on June 24th, 1997. You know, at some point in the process, uh, the band was picked up by Wind Up Records. And then it was released on August 26th of 1997. So most of the copies of this, the millions and millions of copies of this that were sold that all of us seem to have in the late nineties was probably the wind up release, which was remixed. I think some of it was re-recorded, but it was definitely remixed. It was produced by a, a relatively unknown John Kurzweig who kind of teamed up with Creed. The, the, the amazing thing of the album, it's, it's a little bit like the movie swingers. If you want to go back to the nineties again, it, it, the album was recorded for $6,000. So you're talking about super low budget and incredible. incredibly high return. That's an absurdly low budget for a record that did this well. You know, we've been doing this thing where we've brought, you know, compared, done some film comparisons, right? Heaven's Gate. Yeah. I yeah. talked about Hoosiers. You know what this one is? You know what my own prison is? It's Rocky. Ah, I mean, okay. Rocky costed $1 million to make and it did $225 million at the box office pretty comparable to an album that's made for 6,000 freaking dollars. I mean, nubs, you have that much money on you right now, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but to make a record that then went on to sell the way it did is um, that just doesn't happen very often. That's a great comparison. The the lineup for Creed remained relatively. Listen, Creed. Creed. Oh yeah. Well, yeah. Creed. Apollo Creed. Yeah, well, we're missing the most obvious. It all works together, doesn't it? There you it? go, man. Nice. <laughs> well done. Well done. The lineup for Creed, it remained very stable. The only change they had during their time as a band was at bass. And uh, of course, it is the infamous Scott Stapp on lead vocals, uh, guitar, background vocals, uh, and, and sing, sing lead. We'll talk about this when we get to the title track. Is a voice that was really important to the title track that probably most people don't realize was his is guitarist Mark Trumani, who actually was from Michigan, gives him a little local roots to us here, T, where we're from. In, in my opinion, I think he's the him. He and Scott Phillips are like two s- secret weapons of the whole Creed alter bridge thing. I love Mark Trumani as a guitarist. I think he's super underrated. You know, he's one of these guys that can seemingly play rhythm and lead at the same time, which is an art form in guitar playing. And he does it very, very well. And I'm a huge fan. Brian Marshall on bass. And like I said, Scott Phillips on drums, a very melodic drummer and, and one that I have a lot of respect for as well. I think underrated. I think that Scott Stapp took so much attention in this band that people forgot that there were some very strong musicians that were kind of making this thing really go it sort of happens when a front man becomes just a little too famous, you know, couldn't disagree with you more. This is all step. 
<laughs> Step. <laughs> Step wins this album. Step wins this band. Step wins everything. You, you can put whatever the hell you want underneath that, and uh, and it's gonna pop. You think so? I mean, I think Tremonti is a signature guitarist. I really do. It is important. I mean, it all it all works together. And obviously, you know, part of making a six thousand dollar album work is you you've got to be very clever and creative with how you layer and how you create thickness and all those things. And that's what this album does incredibly well. No keyboards, no effects, no bull crap. It's all just guitar, bass, drum, assault. And clearly those guys are important, you know, in order to create the right thickness and the right amount of power. And Tremonti deserves a lot of credit for that. But it's all stat, baby. All stat. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. I agree. Yeah. All right, T. Um, $6,000 budget. Ironically, it sold six million copies in the US, six times platinum. So there you go. Never reached number one. It, it peaked at number 22 on the Billboard 200. It was a slow mover in a lot of ways because it's, you know, basically like a demo album, right? I mean, it's, I don't, I don't want to discount it. It's not a demo, but it, it was an independent release that never intended to do what it did. And you could kind of see with what the band followed it with, with Human Clay and some of the things that came after. You could tell from a production standpoint, they felt like there was a lot to improve on from my own prison, but the rawness and the fact that you could tell that it was sort of recorded in a home studio, I I think was part of its charm because with all the things you mentioned earlier, the ambiguous Christianity, which is a huge part of the story and the the dramatic aspect of the music, I do think by 1997, we were getting towards like a more um, organic feel to all forms of entertainment. This is the time of reality TV. Everything was building more towards like authenticity, right? This is why, as we talked about Guns N' Roses, weren't doing very well by this point because people were kind of more into that human spirit sort of thing. And through the production of the album and the characters that were involved, I think Creed fit the zeitgeist incredibly well and, and got very lucky with their timing, didn't they? It's well said. I, you know, very, it's very minimalist, you know, and, uh, and it didn't seem that way at the time. Um, they were tasked with making a lot work with a little, I mean, a lot of people make fun of Creed and that's rightly so. And they earned a lot of that. One thing you have to respect, whether you like this band or not, is the way that they were able to create so much with so little on this first record. I mean, it was a demo and they were able to kind of take something that was made so inexpensively and create something that was ripe for not just rock radio and not just MTV, but, you know, something that could shift 6 million units eventually. And, um, that doesn't happen very often. Certainly by 1997, that wasn't happening very often. And today that would never happen. I mean, certainly now you have a lot of DIY approach and things can be made cheap. That's not, you know, unusual right now, but it's made with a lot of different digital elements and a lot of different layering and a lot of ways to kind of create in some ways an artificial thick sound where you can, you know, push a MIDI keyboard or push a button and have that added to the mix. These guys were doing it through playing and through, you know, being very clever in a studio environment that didn't give them a ton of tools. That's one of the things you really have to respect about this record, whether you like it or not. Well, see, I want to know whether you like Creed or not, or liked Creed or not, because of all the bands that we had a lot of experiences with together, this is not one that I remember in particular in terms of you and I. There's a couple other people from high school that I bonded with heavily over Creed, but I 
I don't remember where you really stood on this band. So I look forward to hearing that as we slowly and gently immerse ourselves into the wonder stories. See, what's your story of Creed? Slowly and gently. Why? What? Why are we doing it that way? Aren't we no, doing we, it like? Aren't we doing it like? Like what? What's slow and gentle? <laughs> Where did that come from? Well, remember, part of the drama of this album is it's 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 pretty slow. I mean, it, we'll talk about this. When we get tra- track by track. This is not an up tempo album at all. I mean, I think well, I think ninety percent of it is mid tempo or slow. Well, yeah, that's for sure. You know, so um. I, no, I don't particularly like this band, uh, but I wasn't a hater. There was a, you know, there was a whole kind of thing about, you know, it's sort of Nickelback ask. It's like, you know, you know, Creed, they're stupid and their lyrics are dumb and I can't stand Scott Stapp and he thinks he's so great and whatever. And I don't blame anybody for thinking that. I think with Nickelback, they just get like a straight up bad rap because what did they ever do to anybody? These guys earned some of that by being pretty serious and putting themselves in sort of the easily parodied trap, um, which, you know, I think any artist who does that in any field of uh, artistic expression is um, often subject to some of that ridicule. And in some cases you walk yourself into that. So the thing I always think of, particularly with this album is um, we were in college a year after this album. And it did take a while. It was not one that right away in the middle of 1997 was popular. I mean, it took a a year, uh, even two, to really kind of generate sort of its peak popularity, helped by a couple of really strong radio um, singles. But I remember I was in college. There was this there was this gal, uh, you know, just this gal that I, you know, fell in love with for like a week and a half. Right. And uh, we had uh, as you did. Yeah. 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 And we had uh, French class together. and. I remember, you know, being like, this is my freshman year. And I remember being like, hmm, she seems pretty rad. I'm going to ask her to meet me at the bar later. And, uh, and she did. And we were uh, having a few, um, you know, frothy beverages together. And I remember kind of saying, you know, what kind of music do you like? Like what, you know, what are you into? And, uh, and I, I remember she said that she really liked Creed. And I remember being very pleased to hear this. It was like, <laughs> yeah, totally. oh, like you're a rock and roll girl. Nice. You know, and then I, I think I, I fell further in love with her for like the next, you know, probably week, uh, really basically because she told me she liked Creed. I always think of that because this was around the time where I'm not sure if the second record was the second record, Human Clay. Yeah, that was the follow up. Sure, if that I don't think that had even come out yet. I think that it was just this one, but uh, I'm pretty sure that was 99. It didn't yeah. take super long. It was a couple of years. Well, she was probably referring to my own prison. And I just remember thinking that that was just glorious because uh, even at that time, you, you really, I, I think that chicks liked Creed a little bit, um, but they were kind of a dude band. So I still haven't had a chick at a bar tell me that she likes Rush. That's the one I'm really holding out for. <laughs> um, if that ever happens, then Mrs. T better look out because yeah, right. you, know, you, you just don't want to let someone like that. You know, no, that's a keeper. Flee, you know, yeah, yeah. that's a keeper. I think, um, I think Creed did have a spot though with female audiences because uh, I mean, I, I remember a lot of chicks thought that Scott Stab was really hot and particularly before he became a disaster. 
if you remember at first, he was kind of a cool guy. You know, he's, he was sort of your, a guy you could sort of relate with and he was good looking and he had a lot of presence. So I, I do know that at first he was kind of seen as like a nineties sex symbol. Right. But then he, I, I think he uh, destroyed that and in, in not too long of a period of time. You know? Yeah. Well, the other thing that's always funny about creating and this is an, this has been a, you know, 20 plus year debate now at this point is, you know, were they Christian rock? And I know that I think his father was a pastor, a minister or something, which often the case, right? With these rock and roll guys. But uh, the ambiguity of the uh, Christian like overtones and lyrics always cracked me up because you're like rolling right along and he's like, you know, like singing about forgiveness and, and you, you know, seeking the cross and all this stuff. And then he says, God damn. And um, what's this life for? I think. And you're like, whoa, maybe they're not. You know, it, 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 so it's just, he always kept us guessing, you know, kept us guessing on the Jesus front, which, uh, which I always found, you know, very fascinating about this group. They, I remember Christians, like there would be this huge argument between Christians and non-Christians about, did he say God damn, or did he say God damn, you know, <laughs> and like one of them is okay. And one of them's not is also silly, but th- there was, well, then it got censored off of one of the versions of their album. I believe there yeah. was a, a clean version of my own prison, which this album doesn't swear that much, but. But it actually removed the, I think it, I don't know if it just removed the God or if it removed the whole goddamn uh, phrase, but they actually, and I got to think that part of that was some criticism from an audience because, you know, Christian uh, music fans were, were at this point kind of looking for something, I think more mainstream and more like this. I got to think that's probably why they did that. But once this thing got big and they realized this segment of the audience didn't appreciate him saying that all of a sudden you saw a clean version come out with that omitted. So, well, if you um, really, I mean, if for those who really want to get a, a, an extraordinarily smart and humorous perspective on the whole thing, check out South park in the episode where Cartman forms a Christian rock band called faith plus one. Yeah. Faith plus one. Christian and within rock, that Christian rock hard is the name of the episode. Yeah. It's one of the best South Park episodes ever, which says a lot because there's so many incredible episodes. Don't ever leave me, Jesus. I couldn't stand to see you go. <laughs> you would break my heart now if you walk right out that door. <laughs> Jesus, 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 why don't you just shut off the light? <laughs> I need you in my life, Jesus. I can't live without you. Jesus, and I just want to feel you deep inside me, Jesus. That's the one right there. Oh, God. Yeah. So, I mean, so, it, so it's good. so good. Cartman it, it, on the uh, piano and the lead vocals and uh, Butters on the drums. Nice. Butters on the drums. The album cover for the Faith Plus One album is just one of my favorite. Yeah. What does he say for the album cover? It's like the key to a great Christian rock album cover is standing on a mountain and, and looking away like you don't give a crap. You're looking away like you don't care. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He had it all scripted. It's, it's interesting. Cause I, if you look at Creed's history, I don't think there was, I mean, you never know, but I don't think there was intention behind that. This was going to be a strong thing for the market, but the reality is Christian rock people could identify with and think that they're a Christian band and that made it okay. But, Non-Christian rock people, mainstream rock people, 
could totally accept this band too as not being a Christian band. So it was like this brilliant marketing tactic that I do think happened accidentally, but it set up some other copycats that would follow, you know, and that, that was the biggest piece. I think people did start to realize that, wow, if you can tap into both of these markets, you can do pretty damn well, you know? Yep. So that's my wonder story. Now, what do you got? All right. See, well, this album really is just all about high school and college. We graduated in 1998. So my own prison was making its run literally during our senior year. And it was played constantly. You know, this is one of those CDs that everybody owned and listened to in their cars. The songs were all over the radio, but it probably didn't reach, you know, mountaintop heights to reference what we just talked about until Human Clay and Higher and uh, some what are the other oh what if was one of the other singles on that album you know those songs were just massive and I saw Creed the first time I ended up seeing them a few times but in 1999 it was my sophomore year junior year in college and we drove to Cincinnati I went to college in Columbus oh and uh, we drove to Cincinnati some friends and I to go see Creed at the at the time, I think it was called Cincinnati Memorial. It's where the the whole thing with the who happened, that tragedy where people trampled each other. Oh, yeah. And uh, the show was, you know, pretty startling in, in a positive way. I mean, Scott Stapp was one hell of a front man. He owned the stage and they sounded really good and sort of a band that seemed to be in pretty good stride at that moment. And so, you know, I was a fan. You know, I, I liked him. I did not understand the Pearl Jam comparisons. It was the first appearance of the term post grunge. They are much, for the record, much better than Pearl Jam. Oh, stop it. Come on. But yeah, they started this whole post grunge thing. You know, they attaching the name post to any genre is just what music journalists do. So I don't really know what post grunge means. But and then I saw the band again on the weathered tour and it was appropriately named because at that point you could see, Oh, there are cracks in this armor. There's something not going right with this band. And that, that album, while it had a huge hit on it was not a good record. And I think everybody knew it. And the tour was just one of those moments where you could just sort of tell like, Oh, this isn't going well. And it what came was out that hit? the the hit on weathered. Yeah. My sacrifice. When oh, you oh, are when you me. are with yeah. me, I'm free. Yeah, that one. I'm careless. I believe above all the above others. With life. he's got like a like he'll go nuts and then be real soft all in the same chorus. Yeah. Impressive. Impressive. One of the things I actually really liked about it. And I, I will tell you, I think my sacrifice is a wonderful song. I, I still love that. Yeah. Song. That's it's a good great. one. It's yeah. great. But that, um, it, it had, I think one last breath was another hit, but any rate, the weather thing though, was you could just tell something wasn't right. And within a matter of a couple of years, I mean, Scott Stapp was in rehab and the band was just, tumultuous and things not going well was that the uh, the record with the wig with legs wide open on it <laughs> yeah. yes that, that, that was that one. oh with arms i'm sorry with arms what not oh you're, with are you talking about you're talking about weathered with arms wide open yeah yeah sorry. yeah that one yeah, yeah yeah i got that wrong that actually was on human clay that was one of the hits on human oh clay. human clay okay yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's funny uh, and, and it did come out in November of 2001. So, you know, t- 
tough time to release albums and things like that. So anyway, the band eventually disbanded. They I'm still get, over here laughing at my own joke. That's what. Yeah, that's what yeah, yeah, that's fine. <laughs> as, as you should. Uh, they did do a reunion later the, in the decade. I think it was 2008-ish. They did an album called Full, Full Circle. Pretty good record. And I think they did one tour and that was about it. And the rest of the guys went on to form Alter Bridge with Miles Kennedy. Scott Stapp has embarked on a solo career and, and uh, who knows if Creed will ever Creed again. But um, like I said at the beginning of the show, man, getting back into the, the, the tracks that are on my own prison was, was quite a nostalgic experience. And, and I think we should do that right now. Are you ready to go track by track, T? I don't think I've ever been readier, buddy. Let's do it. <laughs> All right, let's go. Well, it doesn't take long to get the loud, quiet, loud thing going, does it? With the opening track, Torn. Sort of an epic opener. I, I think that's what I remember most about putting the CD in because most of us had heard my own prison. That was kind of the entry point. And you put this in, it's like, wow, this song really kind of winds through a lot of different things, you know, and, and certainly the dynamics though are, are what stand out. I don't remember what the time, what, what the time elapses on the song T, but it's a longer track, isn't it? I mean, it's gotta be over five minutes. It is at six twenty-five, which, uh, at that time, pretty unusual. For sure. Yeah. And that stood out too, because it's, it's, it's a couple different songs in one seemingly, and it's pretty epic. So I've always liked Torn. I think it's a, an adventurous opener. I think if you're looking at the compositions on the album, it would certainly be in the top three or four and, and does show the musicality, which the, the, you know, not every moment on the album totally does. So I love it, man. I, I think it's a awesome starter. I think it's a, classic late 90s you know opening track wasn't a huge hit but and that's part of what i like about it too a lot of these songs got pretty overblown in terms of you know radio and mtv etc but i always thought torn was sort of one of those gems that never got uh taken for too long of a ride through those avenues to where you got sick of it i mean just how can you go wrong where the peace is dead in my so I mean, that's great. That is great. You know, it is. that's it really is. That's yeah. great vocal. And you've got, you know, strong guitar. I mean, Tremonti was pretty good at those kind of added. I mean, a lot of this is power chord based, but he was doing a lot of, you know, kind of open segments and added segments to really thicken out the sound. He's a guitar player that can play a chord and through effects and through additions. So the chord structure can kind of make it sound, you know, much cooler than it is almost in an Adam Jones from tool, you know, kind of ask um, yeah. approach. Good comparison. I think they're pretty similar in that way. And that's all, you know, that's, that's the way you take a song, you know, so if you go, let's see, 6,000 divided by 10, every song costed about $600. Uh, if I'm carrying the two correctly there and, uh, you know, that, that's how you make a song that, that costed only $600 to make in a studio, you know, sound this way. I think Torn's, you know, classic late nineties opener. I love it. All right. T. well, uh, really track two is like 
honestly, it's maybe the only up-tempo song on the album, if not, you know, maybe one of two, but uh, it's kind of a pace picker upper when you get to uh, Ode. clip maestro i think that the the riff is interesting at the very least i like the guitar in this song i like the way that it sort of is so busy yet it's got a groove to it and some of the little middle section interludes you know all of them are a little bit different and some of the post-chorus things and pre-chorus things i I think this song does a good job of keeping the listener interested it's it's not super emotional but it's very Creed and the guitar work is very Mark Tremonti. Yeah, I think it's cool. There's um, it's a guitar sound that you really weren't hearing a, a lot of at the time. I mean, there was, you know, there were bands like helmet, you know, that were doing a lot of this drop D, you know, sort of abrasive rock thing. But in terms of, uh, you know, taking something that I think to your earlier point could be categorized as a little bit more Pearl jam esque. And then adding in some of this um, sort of chop guitar, and in this case, something a little bit more up-tempo where you're just kind of working up and down the neck and drop D, I think can be, you know, really um, effective, you know, when when done correctly. And I think on this one, it is. Torn and Ode are kind of a cool one-two punch to start this out. I was surprised at how um, well those two, those first two songs at least, really kind of hold up. I think that was an important part of kind of the start you get off to. And then obviously you get into track three, which is a very well-known one. Quite well-known. The title track, My Own Prison. You got to remember that uh, this album and this era is all pre-YouTube. So seeing a band play a song live now is just something you do like every minute of the day, every time you get on YouTube. Back then, there was a tremendous amount of value on seeing a band play something live. You either saw it on TV late night or at a show. I remember the first time I saw Creed play this at the show I was at during that exact chorus, I was like, Oh shit, that's Mark Tremonti singing. That's not Scott Stapp. Yeah. Scott Stapp is doing the 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 hold note. And I say, oh. But then which he holds out for an hour and a half. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know? I don't know if there was studio trickery there, but Right. But the 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 power fact, of the why song. Don't you, why don't you time me? Let's see how long I can go. You ready? Okay, go ahead. All right, start the clock here, right? And I say, oh. What do I do? 17 seconds. God, you could have helped me out a little bit with a little. So I my <laughs> Where were we on that one? Yeah. I was too busy counting. You know? Yeah. <laughs> but I, I think Tremonti's uh, 
And, and Mark Tremonti has since put out some solo records where he sings lead. And I, I, I really like his solo work. It's very heavy and he's a really good singer, you know, and his vocal part to me is the song, you know, the, the verses are kind of meh, you know, it, it, I don't think there's anything too interesting going on. Of course, when Stapp goes and I cry out to God, seeking only like I, that's a emotional peak of the song, but I think this song is all chorus. And I think so much of it has to do with what Tremonti is doing vocally and seeing that live and seeing him pull that off and hearing them together was, I remember that being a very memorable moment. So I still love my own prison. I think this song, you know, we, we always say holds up. I, I just think it's a really well-written song. I'm not thoroughly convinced the band thought it was going to be such a massive hit, but obviously it was, but uh, yeah, I think the chorus still stands as, you know, one of the kind of trademark choruses of the nineties, you know, I'm just realizing I, I should have done the Ace Ventura thing that mom, mom, <laughs> that is double pane stainless steel glass. <laughs> Tom Ace. Tom you know, Ace. I think you, you nailed it earlier, particularly when, when it comes to the, the title track here, that it just captured right moment at the right time with the right tone. I mean, it, it, it it's not a particularly great song. I think there are high school bands probably that have written better songs, but the entire vibe of it, the entire pace of it, certainly the chorus is, is really strong and pretty cool um, with the two sort of, you know, vocals working together. But I think it's a song that isn't particularly great when you go back and revisit it, but it just landed at the perfect time. With all the things that you can say about Stapp and all the criticisms, one thing I will say is I don't, I don't think he was ever not being genuine. I mean, I don't think he was like, being someone else. I think he was kind of a troubled, confused, religious dude who was yeah. trying to figure out what the hell this all means and using music to express that. And I, I do think that's part of what resonated. You know, I don't, I don't think yeah. he was out there trying to put on some sort of act or something. I, I, I agree. And listen, I think the story of Scott Stapp has a happy ending. I mean, if you've seen, you know, part of what was cool about this is sort of checking out, you know, some of his more recent interviews. And I know that he, you know, went through, you know, a lot to do with sobriety and a lot to do with, uh, which clearly he needed to. And he, he had a few rock bottom moments, you know, that were rather public. It seems like a dude who's in a really good place, you know, and has sort of come to grips with, you know, who he is and what Creed was and what music means to him. And I, it, it's a, it's actually a, uh, it's a pretty cool kind of heartwarming, happy ending. Cause there were moments where, you know, part of the kind of eye rolling that Scott Stapp got was certainly self, uh, inflicted in many ways, but I think it's really cool to kind of see, you know, he's sort of grown up. He's sort of, I think, kind of gotten his shit together in a lot of ways. And there are some really neat um, within the last couple of years, you know, sort of uh, interviews and recollections with him that, that make you like him quite a bit, you know, and, and I never hated him. I always kind of laughed at him, but, um, but it's, it's cool to see, I think the way he's kind of evolved. And if you haven't checked any of that stuff out, you know, it's, it's worth it just to see kind of what the, you know, Scott Stapp, you know, 4.0 kind of looks like right now. See, I don't know how much your pity is worth, but Scott Stapp's pity is worth just one dime. Pity for a dime.
This is where Scott Phillips kind of signature drumming stands out. He's got a great left hand. He does a ton of stuff on the hi-hat when he's also on the ride. He's got this kind of trademark move that he uses during a lot of choruses, but he's, yeah, like I said, I think he's an exceptional drummer and uh, got better over time. But that stands out on this song. I do like, again, we're we're back to mid-tempo, of course. This song does build towards something pretty grand. I mean, the clip you just played, Maestro, is sort of where the song actually kind of explodes. And I like it. They build a lot of tension and then they explode. And that's, you know, that that's kind of Creed's uh, formula at this point, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, in, in, you know, listen, Tremonti's great and the, the band's good and, and we've noted that, but oftentimes they're just providing sort of a foundation for Stapp. And this, uh, this song, when it hits that peak is a good example. I mean, that's, that's not one that if somebody else is providing the vocal is going to be memorable. You know, oftentimes, uh, like on Ode, Tremonti's doing some really cool stuff. Uh, a lot of times, and I think he was probably smart in this regard, it was kind of like sit back and let Scott Stapp sort of drive the ship and do his thing. And I think that's part of what, you know, makes particularly the back half of Pity for a Dime work. It takes a little bit to get you there, but I think when it does, it's pretty effective. So that's the first four tracks. You know, I think those those songs probably got a lot of of attention. You know, you put the the CD in and that's sort of what you would hear in my own prison. We got through the bookends of that album. So you you sort of now get into the the heart of the album tracks, right? That the the non-hits. And that really uh kind of begins with track five. In America. So first and foremost, I always wondered the role of this song in into another song about America, which is America, fuck yeah! You know, getting back to our uh, getting back to our South Park references. <laughs> yeah, totally, totally. You know, it almost feels like Trey and Matt like were sort of inspired by this to write that. You know, totally, totally. So lick my butt and suck on my balls, America. <laughs> I think it's a pop song, a pretty pure pop song that has pretty solid structure until you get to that weird dissonant middle section where they go into this, this minor key. And it's almost like, you know, if you read into lyrics and things, it's, it's like, uh, I don't know, it's the dark side of America coming out. Cause aside from that, the song is fairly hopeful and optimistic and from a melodic perspective, but then you get to that middle that weird, like, do, 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 you know, that he's kind of singing the same melody over the top. It's, it's very strange. And I remember even as a younger listener, like, huh? Like, what did they do there? But yeah, it, it's kind of a hooky pop song, which you don't get a ton of on this record. I mean, it, it ages horribly, but you've got to, you know, if you're going to be a band out of Florida, you got to have a song on your album that, you know, is both quasi patriotic but also questions yeah you know, yeah totally. country of ours. Great call. you yeah. know not too not too much though you don't want to you don't want to question it too much you want to make sure that you still are pro-america but you just want to ask some questions you know but no, I, I think the song ages like crap i mean it's a yeah. this is a yeah. uh this is kind of a high school so there are a couple moments on this 
you know, song and listen, rightly so that kind of sound, uh, high school band or, or like a, uh, somebody recording on a four track in their basement, which essentially they did. (laughs) Yeah, it sort of (laughs) is. Yeah. But, but you know, there are moments where just the songs are just so good that it carries it. And in America is not one of them. Trek six is a song that was misspelled on the original independent release as illusion with an a, but then it was eventually changed on the wind up release to illusion. The, now you uh, think if you were, the, the you know, if you were doing the artwork or whatever, and you, you needed to guess or sort of default to some, you'd think that you default to the uh, one with the eye. It's more, it's more well, it was, it was like the band's independent label. So they probably, you know, probably one of their nephews or something that was doing the type <laughs> setting on this thing. Right. Yeah, so exactly. Who knows? But anyway, track six is illusion. The China symbol, man. <laughs> Drummers out there. The use of the China is great. <laughs> this song, it's completely ridiculous, but it's also kind of amazing. But, uh, you know, pretty, uh, pretty stappy in vocals here, especially when you get to the, the later portion with the just an illusion when they start kind of rocking out at the end. But again, you have, you have one of those middle sections where Tremonti gets busy with his hands. And plays kind of an interesting riff. I mean, that that is one of the signatures of this early creed is these middle sections that just do sometimes just wacky things, but always with some sort of interesting musicality. But I, I think this falls under in America too. I don't I don't think this song ages well. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. It's uh it's pretty Im- immemorable, you know. Um there, there is that kind of guitar chop section in the middle. That's okay. But, um, you know, Hey, of its time, this was probably cool, but yeah, you listen to it now and it, and it just sounds kind of thin and kind of old and, you know, but, um, you know, Hey, when you make an album for six grand, there are going to be moments like this. <laughs> the, the, the Christian ambiguity continues with track seven unforgiven. So here's the other up-tempo rocker joining Ode. This band's not very good at being up-tempo. They're they're really not. It it sounds a little bit too tight. You know, you kind of get a little bit more of the looseness going when they're in their kind of normal mid-tempo range. But uh, it kind of sucks the emotion out of the songs. I think this and Ode both are in that category. And I think the verses are just dreadful on this song. You know, again, you got the vocal effects and and steps going for something really raw and heavy, but I, I don't think it really works. I think it's cool. Actually. I mean, of its time, the loud, quiet, loud thing was pretty, you know, in vogue, but this distorted vocal and this kind of, um, uptempo, you know, pretty aggressive thing into a chorus. That's much more melodic. It almost sounds like two singers and, you know, you and I have always kind of been suckers for the, for the dual singer thing. I think it's kind of cool, actually. You know, the the verses are 
a little bit more aggressive, a little bit more driving. And then, you know, the chorus where he really kind of softens the vocal and sort of they, they kind of drag things out a little bit melodically. I actually think it works pretty well. Um, so, you know, this is probably the flip of In America and Illusion, where at the time uh, it was kind of like, what the hell is this? This is messy. But now you kind of go back and you see the sort of dichotomy of what's happening in the verses into a, a sort of a very different sort of more gliding nature of the chorus with a with a more soft kind of vocal approach. I actually think they're trying to combine a lot of different approaches uh, within this one song, Unforgiven, that, you know, actually kind of work. So I, I like wow. it. I thought you were going to slam it for sure. I, that's kind of a pleasant surprise. I, you, you definitely, you hit a good point where just kind of sloppy musicianship. This band was young. They were not even close to being developed as players. And you can hear it here. I mean, it's not a great performance. I guarantee you if they were able to, to re-record this song, in a more modern time when they've all become much better at, at their respective crafts, you would hear a, a more cohesive thing. It, it, yeah. It sounds like uh, guys in different parts of a, of a home recording in a home studio, you know, and it's just not, it's not super cohesive in terms of performance. Well, that's absolutely right. And that's part of, I mean, you know, un, unlike you last week with the violent femmes, I, I'm giving this one a, 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 a very fair chance. And uh, you know, part of what I'm, uh, putting into context here is, you know, that song costed $600 and it was at a time where people weren't really attempting to be that ambitious with something so aggressive, but also that has a chorus that smooths it out a little bit. When you factor all those things in, um, you know, is it a song I want to listen to every day? Probably not, but it's pretty neat. And I actually think holds up better than, than many others within this record. I wasn't fair last week. Is that what you're saying? I, come yeah, on, man. He, that was... You're uh, saying yeah. that is unfair. We That's might as unfair. well. We might as well have not even done an episode. I, everybody, uh, everybody out there knew. It's kind of like when everybody in the stadium knows what play is about to be run. It's like everybody knew what you were going to think of that one, you know. But hey, that's okay. That's okay. Jeez. Oh, All right. I know. Well, yeah. Okay. Well, uh, maybe we should write a song called "Brother," uh, and that could complement track eight, which is "Sister." the best of the unknown album tracks it's a terrific composition it's got mood it's got melody uh, i think mark tremonti's guitar playing is bringing out some of the high notes and some of those little melodies that he sprinkles in again those that's the thing that you would get from him for the rest of his career and it, it's just kind of a fun song it's like the band actually sounds like they're enjoying themselves on sister maybe for the first time all album you know <laughs> Dude, I love it. I th this was a big song for me. Th this so when I talked about it at the top of the episode, there was one in particular that was more of a deep cut, but one that really st sticks out for me. Um, it's Sister. I, this this song jumped out at me right away, even back then. Of like, wow! And I almost was hoping that it didn't become a big hit. Which for this record, it's like you know, so many of them could have been and were, but I, I kind of wanted Sister to be like uh, my own you know, my own little thing, you know, cause, uh, 
everyone would talk about this band and they'd talk about the the big singles and I'd be like, yeah, but have you heard that song toward the end called sister? Like it kicks ass. And then, you know, people listen to it and be like, yeah, that one's really good. You know? So, um, this was, this is definitely a standout track, you know, for, for me and it, and it comes late in the album and it comes at a point where a lot of people may have been like flipping or whatever to get to the last two. But I, I, I think it's a real gem. I really do. I think it's a, a really cool chorus that's not trying to do too much. Um, yeah, I think Sister's great. It's an excellent assessment, T, and I would just add to it by saying uh, Violent Femmes never wrote anything this good. So, you know. Well, when you give things a proper chance, you often learn something new. So, <laughs> All right, let's talk about a track that I think we can agree on as being far and away one of the worst songs I've ever heard in my life. And that is what's this life for? I still, Oh, do I have to listen to this? Oh, there it is. Goddamn school. I mean, dude, look, I know it's 1997, but how in the hell did anyone take this song seriously? I mean, I remember at 17 when this song sort of broke and and it did, it became a hit. I mean, this song was on the radio a lot and it was one of those moments to, you know, as music fans, I think we all have them where I'm looking around at everyone just like, are you guys crazy? This song sucks. (laughs) Yeah. It's horrible. The, The chorus is, is dreadful. (laughs) <laughs> you know, for those who need a remembrance, it's like, what's this life for? I, I just, I hate this song. It's, this was, really, it's, it's, it's one of my like bottom five songs of all time. It's extremely bad. It's extremely bad. Um, but, but people loved it, dude. Yeah. It's like, how did people love it so much? I think it showed, you know, that the, these guys were bringing a, a very appealing sound. I mean, sometimes... I guess you'd call it a little bit of a heat check. It's like, if there's a band that comes on and and kind of gives you something different, but something that's pretty tangible. These guys have a lot of things that, whether it's the vocals or, or sort of the, you know, sort of riffing or just the overall kind of power of it. That was different for a lot of people. And sometimes when that's the case, you can throw kind of a crappy song out there and it can become really well received. I, I think it's, it's bad. I mean, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, and, exactly. And it, you know, and the thing is, I think that, for, for Creed and for, you know, some of these other bands that sort of get panned and eye rolled, there's going to be a day, a priority is a day where a lot of people listen back as we've done already in a few of these tracks and kind of say, you know, that's a good song. Like I get why that thing blew up. Um, this one, I don't, I don't know that there's, I mean, is there really anybody out there? I mean, you made the point that even at the time you were like, what the hell is wrong with you people? But like, even now, it's like, do you ever hear anyone being like, yeah, man, what's this life for Creed? Oh, what a great, what a classic. Yeah, right. I mean, no. <laughs> no. And, and really, T, nobody would. I mean, this song, this song would not connect to the 2021 audience at all. The one good thing about what's this life for is it puts you in such a foul mood that it sets you up perfectly for, in my opinion, the, the pinnacle of the album, <laughs> track 10, the closer. Which is one, oh, one. The only way is one. I 
Dude, again, man, like great drumming by Scott Phillips. This song has a tremendous groove to it. I mean, it's a total head, not her toe tapper, right? The, the chorus is big. It's grand. But what I really love about the song T is, is what it does in those last couple of minutes. You know, I think the breakdown is really cool. You got those big guitar strums and uh, the hi-hat runs. And then when, when Stapp comes in with that, whoa, you know, he's kind of holding the notes, not singing words. I'm kind of all in at that point. It's like this, this and then they do one last chorus and that fades out to the end of the album. I, I just think the song, what's this life for is everything bad about Creed. Right. It's everything that people made fun of them comes out in that song. One to me is everything good about Creed and everything that people yeah. loved about them really comes out in this one track. I, I just, I love this song. I've listened to this song, you know, for the last 24 years and have never gotten sick of it. I, I think it's just fantastic. Yeah. I, I don't, I think that's perfectly said. I don't have much to add. I, I, I really think it's cool that they bookended. Uh, in, in strong fashion. I mean, torn is a great way to start it. And one is a great way to end it, you know, and I agree with you. It's very dynamic. It's got a nice tempo to it. Everyone's kind of on their game on this one. And, uh, and I'm with you, man. I think it's a great, I, I totally didn't realize it was the closing track to this, you know, until, until revisiting, I would have told you that this was stuck in the middle of it or, you know, maybe toward the beginning or track four or whatever. Yeah. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it's cool that they closed with it. They, they had to know that this was strong. Uh, and instead of like doing the old, like put it in track two, which would have been very easy, you know, they kind of decided to sequence things where you kind of ease into this a little bit more with torn and ode and then into my own prison, which probably everybody knew was going to be pretty good, but to wrap things up with the exception of what's this life for, you know, you've got, um, sister, and then you have one, which are both really kind of neat ways. I think it showed some thoughtfulness of not just front loading all your good stuff, which in 1997 was still certainly a trend, um, showed some thoughtfulness from the band and, and it's a great song. I think this one is a nineties classic one that holds up really well. And I would say too, T great lyrics and very rare for us to say that because we're not big lyric guys and I don't pay most of the time. I don't pay attention to lyrics unless they're really impactful or more importantly, unless they go perfectly with the music. And I think you've got a perfect marriage here between lyrical concepts, words being sung in the right way and the music and the melodies that are partnering with it. So yeah, a little bit. I mean, I, you know, sometimes steps like I, me, I, me, my thing gets a little old. I mean, there's a lot of that here. Yeah, that's a good point. And I just always found that to be lazy lyrics, you know, and we've talked we haven't talked a lot about lyrics on the old podcast here, and I always kind of tend to lean towards things that are a little bit more centered around wordplay and creativity and some of these things. And like with him, it just always seemed to be, and I think this was part of his downfall, you know, during this stage was like, it, it really was kind of all about him all the time in terms of things that were being, you know, things that he was singing about and in lyrical concepts, there wasn't a lot of, there weren't a lot of things that were clever or that were objective to the point where you could absorb them and be interested in them. It was kind of like if Scott just sat there and wrote angry poetry about himself and his life, which <laughs> yeah. probably is what happened. Well, it's like it, him just yeah. whining about his confusion, like yeah. essentially, right? Isn't that what it is? Yeah. And, and, you know, there's 10 tracks on here, like five of that would have been fine. You know, it's kind of like, I get it. Now, why don't you show that you can, you know, put together something that's artistically interesting? 
but you know that that again that's what made them creed it's it, you know this is not a perfect outfit you know this is not an outfit that didn't walk itself into a few traps but that's what made them who they were you know man very very well said t so we have wrapped up my own prison t let's get into our kind of closing elements here and uh let's begin by just asking the question did my own prison matter what do you think yeah i kind of i kind of think it did mostly because it bridged you to kind of a new wave of music because something needed to take grunge and sort of tweak it and then send it into what we started to see in the late nineties, which was new metal and also was a more sort of layered um, hard rock and metal sound, which has kind of taken us all the way up to today, really in a lot of ways with uh, your favorite genre in mind, festival rock and those type of things. Um, something had to bridge those and something had to bridge those appropriately. And Creed was perfect. You know, the things that they were doing uh, vocally, the things that they were doing musically were, were perfect in that way. Still minimalist. I mean, still very stripped down. This is, I think, I don't know if there's a keyboard on the entire record. Now, maybe there is and I missed it, but it's, you know, guitar, bass, drums, and Scott Stapp vocals. And to do that in a way that's this stripped down and this, you know, low budget, and have it be a tremendous success is something that, you know, is important and was important of that time. It parallels with the Violent Femmes. I think what you saw with the the, the Violent Femmes album, I'm going to keep pushing this on you until you get it, Nub, is, you know, <laughs> it, Jeez. is demonstrating that something can be minimalist and stripped down and still be very memorable and important at a time where everything surrounding it is going in the direction of production. I mean, this was a year from the boy band craze, right? This was, you know, two years before Woodstock 99. I mean, this was, you know, things were happening. Things were moving in a very distinct direction. And what my own prison shows is, hey, you can be four dudes from Florida that get in a room with a lot of fairly low budget equipment and kick out an album for six grand, where if the performances are, are genuine enough and strong enough, and the songs are good enough and are sort of, you know, worthy for the radio or the airwaves, you can make it work. And I think it's, it's a really, really good example of that. And therefore, you know, fairly important. It's not going to be noted as like one of the best albums of all time, but in that context and, and what it demonstrated at a time where I think it was really important for that to be demonstrated, you know, it really did so effectively. How about you? Does it matter? New Blaze. I think it matters in the sense that it probably bought us another three or four years where we could still have a guitar-based rock band be mainstream and flood the radio and do outstanding in record sales. Because I think the industry knew that the pop thing was coming. You know, by 2000, which was only three years after this album, this was Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera, NSYNC, Backstreet Boys. And that, that was well orchestrated, right? I mean, these things don't happen by accident. And I think that the industry knew what was on the horizon with digital, knew what was going to happen to sales in the coming years. And they wanted to cash in on the pop scene as much as they possibly could before everything kind of went to shit. Creed allowed the industry, I think, to have a rock band come in and be a factor in the timing of all of that. And so I think it bought us a few years of that. I think that, 
you know, if Creed had to come along, maybe the pop thing would have started more like 1998 or 99 when, when really it was late 99 and 2000, where it truly became the thing. And so, um, I appreciate the band for that. And I think this album matters because it was what did that. I also think it's just a great lesson as we talked about with the film references earlier, that just because you put a lot of money into something doesn't mean that it's going to be good. And just because something uh, does not have a large capital investment in it doesn't mean that it can't be successful. So the story that this band got to experience is, is sort of the dream, you know, this little independent band from Florida and, and you make something that resonates and, and it takes off. So yeah, I think it matters for all of that symbolism, maybe more than the sound or the songs. With all that said, T, and, and all things considered, I'm looking forward to your final cut. Where do you have Creed's My Own Prison? Do you have it on the turntable? Do you have it in the collection? Do you have it collecting dust? Or is it on its way to the for sale bin? What do you got, T? I'm going to go with in the collection, man. I, you know, I think that not every song is perfect. Um, in fact, there are some that are really clunky. But when you think about the, the context of the time, when you think about the fact that this was recorded so cheaply, but was able to demonstrate that with good songs and with good feeling and, you know, getting the timing right, which these guys clearly did. I don't think if this record came out five years later, it would have hit. You know, you can hear them being sort of rookies at this. But there's a charm to that. That's a positive thing. And I think that as pretentious and as serious as, as this could be deemed, it's a band that believed in what they were doing. It's a band that was genuine and a singer that was genuine. And I think that that's kind of why it worked at the time. So in hindsight, not everything's going to look perfect. There's some bad, couple of bad moments on here. You know, there weren't many of these that followed. I mean, things went in a very kind of new metal, heavy production, heavy layering, and now sort of festival Rocky DIY type of approach. And this was, you know, probably a late game example of four dudes with instruments getting into a studio setting that certainly didn't arm them with a lot of tools and finding a way to squeeze out an album that really had an impact, you know, both commercially and in the direction of kind of the music scene at the time. And I think for that, it deserves to be in Z collection can't put on the turntable too many weak moments, but, uh, but that's where I'm going with my own prison. What do you got, buddy? I'm going to agree with everything you said, but I'm going to go with collecting dusts. A lot of the same reasoning that the reality is though, T that the album sold 6 million copies. I mean, this was a huge, huge record. This became a music industry album. You know, it put wind up records on the map. It made wind up records, a an incredibly successful venture. Whereas before that, it was just kind of this little label with a few, you know, promising rock bands. So I, I think it had a great impact on the industry. I think the music is, is a time capsule of its era. And so in that sense, I think one should own it. There are weak moments that are hard to get through, but the strong moments are fantastic. And so, you know, collecting dust is a good place to assign it. I think you and I are pretty aligned on our overall perspective on the, on the album. For sure. All right, T. Well, I think we should put a bow on old episode 56 here. And let's do that by checking in with Dolores. What is in your head? You like that? 
Let's do the Scott Stapp version. In your head, in your head, in it, in it, in it, in it, in your head. T three songs that you uh, or actually it's him, so he'd be saying in my head, yeah, yeah, yeah. me, me, my head in my troubled, confused head. (laughs) It's a a fabulous call. All right, T. T three songs that you've been enjoying of late. What do you well, got? right now, my, you know, my son, Clay, who many of you have met in our Foo Fighters episode, uh, he's in the other room playing Super Checks bubble hockey with his buddies. So all I'm hearing in my head right now is do, 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 do. And the third period is underway. That's, that's what I'm hearing right now, like in, <laughs> like in real life. So I'll try to put that aside for a second. Uh, the call doing a let the day begin, which is not only just an awesome, you know, 80s song, but uh, uh, what a great uh, moment in Tango and Cash, you know, where Gabriel Cash walks into the strip club and sees, uh, you know, Ray Tango's sister. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Great scene. And actually, she dances to uh, a Yaz song, uh, Don't Go. But when he first walks in, they're playing Let the Day Begin. Uh, which is just a beauty. The second is by the three ladies known as Haim. And, you know, their music really started to kind of go off the rails and they got Festival Rocky and they got, you know, into the same trap that Vampire Weekend and Royal Blood and all these others have. But their first record, Days Are Gone, I thought was great. And the uh, the, the hit song off that is called The Wire. And, you know, I that's a great tune, man. That That's one that I just, you know, it was kind of a hit, never got sick of. And, you know, I like those ladies. I wish they'd get back to, uh, you know, just sort of playing their instruments and doing their thing. Cause they've, uh, they've gone in the same direction. Many have, unfortunately, but, uh, I thought a backstage party with the uh, ladies of Heim would be pretty fun. Oh yeah. They'd you know, be, they just seem like, they seem like they'd be fun to party with. Yeah. They, they'd be some fun gals. I think some fun gals. And, uh, the third, I'm going to go with, uh, uh, the band of horses talked about before. And uh, it's on their fantastic album called Cease to Begin. And it's track two, which is called The Ode to LRC, which is just a nice driving beat, great piano riff. And man, Band of Horses, when they were rolling, those couple albums were great. So that is what is in my head. Nubbles, what's in your head, bud? T, I've made a recent vow to listen to more radio. So in my car, I'm doing less podcasts and things like that. And I I just want to get back into the the organic nature of rock radio. So I've been listening like, like to terrestrial radio. Yeah. Like local. Yeah, exactly. yeah. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And it's been an awesome experience. I've been listening to mostly WRIF 101.1 here in Detroit, which is, it, it's a legendary rock station around here and they still do such a great job. And I want to give them a shout out because I'm rediscovering the joy of radio. It's, it's actually really fun to go back to not knowing what song is going to be next and not, and not choosing it and learning about music through radio. And so I want to point out three of the songs that I've heard this week that I've, that have all st- stood out in a, in a few different ways. The first one is a song called smells like teen spirit by a band called Nirvana. Have you heard of it? It's a song that I really, it's no, a pretty yeah. obscure, obscure. That was a deep cut. Wasn't it's it? It's a deep cut. It's a song I never liked as we talked about in episode one. I, we, I'm not a big Nirvana guy, but, I heard it on the radio. It sounded so good. It sounded really authentic to how, you know, we first experienced that song. And at the end, when Kurt's doing the the denial thing, I was like kind of all in. I was like, oh, that, that kind of 
kicks ass. Like <laughs> I kind of understand smells like teen spirit. Now I think hearing it on the radio was important. Uh, secondly is a band that I'd never heard of before, but I heard this song that kind of sounded like black crows and buck cherry. It's a song called when I'm gone. And the, the band is called dirty honey. And this is a regular on WRF and it is a hmm. exceptional rock song. You really should check it out. It's got a big, huge chorus and it's very anthemic and it's, it's nostalgic throwing back to like a, you know, more of a nineties, almost Southern rockish, but heavy sort of deal. So dirty honey when I'm gone. And then lastly, and this is a, this is why radio is so cool because I'm a huge Shinedown fan, huge. They're one of my favorite bands that's sort of creating music today. And I heard a song on, on Riff called Atlas Falls. And I was like, this isn't on an album. And it turns out it's a single that they released during the pandemic. It's an outtake from their album, uh, Amaryllis, which is just, you know, one of the best albums of the decade. And Atlas Falls is, you know, just an absolutely fantastic Shinedown song. It's uh, something I wish I would have heard months ago, but discovered on radio. So thank you, WRIF, for continuing to do what you do and playing this great rock music so schmucks like me can still discover music on radio. And I recommend everybody get back into radio. It's actually really fun. It's been a fun experiment and I'm going to stick with it for sure. T, it has been a lot of fun going back to 1997. And, uh, you know, I appreciate your takes, man. Yeah. 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 I agree. Thanks, buddy. Yeah. So thanks, Topper. And uh, we will see everybody for episode 57. Heinz 57. You know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> That's all I can think of. I don't, I don't even know. <laughs> and uh, take care of yourselves and take care of each other and make sure to do both of those things. And we will see you for episode Heinz 57 back here on Two Twins and an album. Two twins. Well, that's about it. That's all we have. I hope it wasn't too disappointing. We will see you on tour. Until then, take it easy.